Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 15 of the American Social Fabric podcast titled The Letters from the Federal Farmer, Part 2. episode number 15 of the American Social Fabric Podcast. Uh, welcome back to everybody who is a repeat listener. I truly appreciate you coming out and checking out another episode. And hello to everybody who's a new listener. The purpose of this podcast is to explore the core American principles that underpin the American political system in an attempt to repair the frayed social fabric of our nation. In this week's episode, we will look at the second letter from the letters from the federal farmer to the Republican. But first, I do want to mention that the first vlog on the American Social Fabric YouTube channel. It should be live now. Uh, in that vlog, I'm challenging myself with getting up at 4.30 and going to exercise and vlogging my experience with that for about 12 weeks here. It's really an attempt to get healthy and kind of change my diet and lifestyle. So if you're interested in that wildly unrelated thing to the podcast here, it would be great if you checked it out. However, before moving into the second letter, I did want to read for you guys some interesting passages from a book called On Grand Strategy. Oddly enough, this week when I was at the gym at 4.30 in the morning, I've been listening to this audiobook, and the author started talking briefly about the Articles of Confederation and the Constitutional Convention. The scope of this book is very broad, and seemingly it goes from ancient Greece and Persia all the way to modern times, and in the book right now, I'm kind of in early America, and he is talking about the development of the Republic. Now, the author of this book is a man named John Lewis Gaddis. He is the Robert Lovett Professor of History at Yale University and the founding director of the Brady Johnson Program in Grand Strategy, I believe in the book he's also mentioned that he lectured at the Naval War College, and he's a very distinguished historian, uh, mainly writing about the Cold War history and grand strategy. It turns out he actually wrote other books that I have read, one of them being the George F. Kennan, An American Life, and the Cold War, A New History. I'd read those a while ago. I kind of want to reread the George F. Kennan book now with the context of who the author is, because he is a great historian and a great writer. So I strongly suggest all of his books. So when he is discussing the formation of early America and the Revolutionary War in the context of what was needed to ensure victory over the British, he said that it could only be done by a government, and the Americans were unsure in 1776 what kind of government they wanted, so they settled for governments grounded in the interests of each state, linked loosely by the Articles of Confederation. These established a league, but not a nation. There was no chief executive, no judicial review of legislation, and most significant, no authority to tax. It was as if the Americans had made salutary neglect, their first constitution, but whether the lightness they liked in the old British Empire could extract them from the new one remained to be seen. And you'd have to read the book to get the context of his salutary neglect reference there, as he's referencing kind of a strategy and problem-solving method implied under the Elizabethan British Empire. But that's an aside. Um, I think the interesting part of this is him talking about how the Americans, when they needed a central government, chose a confederation of governments, a loosely linked set of Republican states, 
each of which had to agree essentially to everything within the confederation. So I think he puts it much more eloquently than I did last week, and I thought that was a useful summary of the articles for you guys. So the second quote from the On Grand Strategy book that I wanted to read for you guys uh, deals with the Constitutional Convention. And I'm going to read a passage first from the first letter from the federal farmer to the Republican and his take on the convention from when it happened. He says, September 1786, a few men from the Middle States met in Annapolis and hastily proposed a convention to be held in May 1787 for the purpose, generally, of amending the Confederation. This was done before the delegates of Massachusetts and of the other states arrived. Not a word was said about destroying the old Constitution and making a new one. The states, still unsuspecting and not aware that they were passing the Rubicon, pointed members to the new convention for the sole and express purpose of revising and amending the Confederation, and probably not one man in 10,000 in the United States till within these 10 or 12 days had an idea that the old ship was to be destroyed, and he put to the alternative of embarking in a new ship presented or of being left in danger of sinking. The states, I believe, universally supposed the convention would report alterations in the Confederation, which would pass an examination in Congress, and after being agreed to there, would be confirmed by all the legislatures or be rejected. So the author here in this 1787 letter is saying effectively that they all got tricked, that the purpose of the Constitutional Convention, even though in my opinion had a spectacular outcome in the passing of the Constitution, was proposed and intended to be a redrafting of the Articles. So he, you can tell here that he's pretty upset and pretty shocked by what ultimately came out of the Constitutional Convention. Then moving to how John Gaddis described the situation, he describes it even more revolutionary than that. He says, the second American Revolution began in the manner of Augustus with a pyramid scheme of proposedly inclusive meetings. The first took place at Washington's Mount Vernon in 1785, ostensibly to stop the bickering between Maryland and Virginia over navigation rights on the Potomac. The real issue, the participants concluded, was the internal tariffs, and that required a larger conference at Annapolis in 1786, but those present saw the need for still larger adjustments in the Articles, for which they organized a constitutional convention in Philadelphia in 1787. It, in turn, in closed sessions, swept the Articles into oblivion. It wasn't a coup d'etat. It moved too slowly and politely for that. As a fait accompli, however, it came close. He moves on to say, over the following summer, the delegates crafted the world's longest living but least amended constitution, with which few of its signatories were fully satisfied. So this passage here, for me, is very surprising. The author describes it as both a near coup d'etat and the second American Revolution. Reading the historical letters from the actual figures and passages like this from this newly written book, I was never aware of like how revolutionary and how contentious even the Constitutional Convention was, and how it almost didn't come to pass. And with that, that's the few follow-up passages I wanted to read from last week's letter. And so let's move on to this week's letter number two. So in his second letter, the author comes out swinging. He has like essentially no introduction and he moves directly into what he sees as the essential parts of a free and good government. First, he defines it as one with full and equal representation of the people in the government. He defines this as a government which possesses the same interests, feelings, opinions, and views as the people themselves would if they were all assembled. A fair representation, therefore, would be so regulated that every order of men in the community, according to the common course of elections, can have a share in it, in order to allow professional men, merchants, traders, farmers, mechanics, etc., 
to bring just proportion of their best informed men respectively into the legislature. So what he's saying is that for a government to be fair and equal, it must represent everybody, all the tradesmen, all the varying professions in the country, no matter if a respected profession, you know, in, within society, but respected in quotations, or one that's more looked down upon, a government can't be fair and equal unless everyone has a say. And a problem that he has with the draft constitution in this regard is that there will only be about 200 state senators and less than that in the federal government representing effectively everybody in the country. Now, he doesn't get into the House legislatures, which are you know more numerous or anything like that. So I'm not sure why he picked out state senators and federal senators for this example, but that's one example he gives as something that is a far too narrow representative body for the size of the U.S. and the diversity of the U.S. So moving on to the second part of his definition is he feels that a jury trial by your community in matters of justice is essential towards a free and fair government. Now his arguments are, are mainly coming from a geographical concern. He's concerned about the actual distance from American citizens to their local courts, whether they be state courts or federal courts. Um, now he's very concerned that the federal courts will override and effectively remove the state courts, making even fewer courts available for the U.S. citizens. So in effect, he's very worried about a federal district court in Phoenix, Arizona, say, but then those, you know, 100 miles away, 200 miles away up in northern Arizona would have to travel all the way there in order to seek justice to face trial or to get something they're owed. So he's very concerned about the actual physical distance to the court system. And while most of this has been done away by our modern age, you can Zoom call into court, especially during the COVID adjustments that all the courts made. So many of those concerns are now a thing of the past, so to speak, but access to justice is still very much a concern in our nation. Those without the means to hire a lawyer or those without the education in the court system cannot take advantage or full advantage, I should say, of the opportunities that are actually out there or, you know, receive compensation for things they're owed. So while the overall concern of his or the reasons he has concerns are not applicable today, the underlying concern of his access to justice, access to the court systems, and a feeling like you can use the system to your own advantage are still very much concerns of our modern America. So after defining what he sees as a free and good government, he dovetails his access to judgment argument into an access to power argument. His next main concern is in effect that if it were possible to consolidate the states and preserve the features of a free government, Still, it is evident that the middle states, the parts of the Union about the seat of government, would enjoy great advantages, while the remote states would experience many inconveniences of remote provinces, wealth, offices, and benefits of a free government would collect in the center, in the extreme states, and by extreme he means geographically distant, and their principal towns become much less important. So here, much like the access to government argument, he's saying that even if you could have a free and good government under his definition, there would still be problems when you consolidate power under one federal government because states far away from that central hub of power would languish. They wouldn't have access to the wealth. They wouldn't have access to the opportunities of states closer. And that's still very much a problem today in the way that our America looks at the East Coast. New York is still the financial hub of America. Washington's the political power hub of America. Many of the tech power hubs, although, you know, they also are on the West Coast as well in San Francisco, but, you know, Boston's a major power hub for technology innovation. That is still a main, major concern in America today, you know, access to cities with opportunity. And that's going to, I suppose, always be an, an issue to an extent in every country. And to some extent, opportunity has spread across the U.S., whether you look at Austin, Dallas, Chicago, Phoenix. So things aren't as bad as, as he's making it seem here. However, you know, there's no question today that many people still see the East Coast as holding 
showing special influence and special advantages that other states don't have. And that's not something that I think technology can solve because there will be those ingrained social networks that perpetuate keeping power consolidated in those certain cities. That's not even necessarily it's intended, I mean. It's just the reality and the nature of humans is you want to work with people you know and trust. So if you all went to the same private schools on the East Coast, those would be the people you want sitting next to you when you achieve a certain level of office or power or something like that. And I think that would be something to be solved by specific policy as opposed to relying on the good nature of people. So his concern about power being hoarded in geographical locations leads into his next point which is that the laws of a free government rest on the confidence of the people and operate gently and never can extend their influence very far if they are executed on free principles about the center where the benefits of government induce the people to support it voluntarily yet they must be executed on the principles of fear and force in the extremes and again that means geographic extremes not viewpoint extremes this has been the case with every extensive republic of which we have any accurate account so i think if we extrapolate this out a little bit what we have here is a lack of buy-in to the government and a lack of feeling amongst a civilian population that they're not seeing the benefits or having a real input on how the government operates and functions and I think that's a real problem today in current America. I mean, look at the election of Donald Trump, whether you voted for him or if you didn't. My understanding is that a big part of the reason he was elected was because many Americans feel that they do not have a say in the government or that their views are not actually represented. And the only views that are represented are by the powered few living in large cities across the U.S. So I think that his critique here is very applicable today if we extrapolate out in that regard. So in essence, what he is saying is we really need social trust within our society for the government to function properly. Now, the author feels that to create this social trust, a free and enlightened people will make a certain social compact to manifest it. He says, a free and enlightened people informing this compact will not resign all of their rights to those who govern, and they will fix limits to their legislatures and rulers, which will soon be plainly seen by those who are governed as well as by those who govern, and the latter will know that they cannot be passed unperceived by the former without giving a general alarm. So he's saying that social trust will come from certain express limits on what the government can do, as well as certain measures on when the government would exceed those powers. He's arguing, in essence, for transparency in the rights of the people and the limits of the government. And I think this goal is very, of course, good, and of course something we should all strive for in society. But I also think this was something achieved partly through the Bill of Rights, which of course would come later. And with that, that is all the major points I wanted to cover from letter number two. Next week, we will move on to letter number three. And I apologize if partway through this episode, my voice changed significantly as midway through recording this, I got hit by a Mack truck of allergies. And uh, the past couple of days have been pretty rough. So I appreciate you sticking it out. And hopefully by next week, they'll be cleared up. And with that, let's move on to the good for this week. So the good this week comes from the August 8th entry of the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, and I will first read the quote from Marcus Aurelius in his Meditations section 9.29. It says, Do now what nature demands of you. Get right to it if that's in your power. Don't look around to see if people will know about it. Don't await the perfection of Plato's Republic, but be satisfied with even the smallest step forward and regard the outcome as a small thing. So Ryan goes on to say that you can't be prevented from starting to improve things because the world isn't already as you want it to be. You have to take the world as it is and begin to take small steps in a positive direction towards the changes you want to see in the world. And that's how I see this podcast. I recognize the limits of the podcast. I recognize my audience may be very small, but if I can just start taking little steps each day towards making Americans agree on their principles again, 
feel proud of their principles again and to maybe reduce the tension just even a fraction of a percent in this country that would be what i'm aiming for each and every day so whatever that is for you i suggest you take ryan's advice and just start with the world as it is and try and take little tiny steps each day towards the better world you want and with that i will speak with you guys next week i hope you have a great weekend and we'll talk to you later bye everybody